Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Anne Philippe, founder and host of the New Health Club Show. I like to invite you to change your mind about psychedelics because I believe we are entering a new era of health, bodies and brains. And for this, we need new tools, experts and thought leaders which you can meet here at the New Health Club Show. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. Today, my guest is finally Sherry Rice, founder and CEO of Anthea, a company that brings psychedelics to the workspace. Sherry has helped dozens of startups, nonprofit organizations, academic research institutions, and small businesses raise funds, operate according to their mission and values, and implement processes that enhance their overall efficiency. Sherry consulted for over 10 years with the United Nations and World Bank, implementing cash transfer programs at the national level in over 35 countries. Sherry holds a master's degree in public policy and management from the London School of Economics and a bachelor degree in psychology and international development from McGill University. She also completed the certificate in psychedelic therapies and research from the CIIS Institute in 2021. In addition to being Anthea CEO, she is the executive director of the Boston Psychedelic Research Group and the grants manager for CIIS. Sherry believes in living and working in alignment with purpose and is currently focused on expanding access to psychedelic assisted therapy to alleviate human suffering. Anthea is the first company in the psychedelic field bringing psychedelic therapy to the workspace and workplace. And this is one of the things that I was always fascinated by and how interesting Sherry actually created the first strategies to give you the opportunity as a boss or somebody who has a company to give psychedelic therapy to your employees in a very interesting way, which she will talk about in the podcast. Please enjoy the show and Sherry. I'm very happy to finally have Sherry Reitz on the show, founder and CEO of Anthea, a company that I've been following for a while because I think you guys are doing amazing things. So, but let's start with your story before Anthea. So you were actually doing a lot of interesting work with the UN and the World Bank. So maybe you start to tell us a little bit about that started. Sure. So I started my career, as you said, consulting to the UN and the World Bank. I was working specifically on poverty reduction strategies. So I was working uh, with the World Bank and the UN in different countries looking for ways to reduce poverty. And I ended up implementing programs at the national level in 37 different countries. 
I also chose um, to be really much hands-on in the field and on the ground. So for those 10 years that I spent in international development and poverty reduction work, I pretty much only spent 10 days a year at home in Canada and 355 days in the field. And I chose to work in very resource-constrained environments like Afghanistan, Yemen, Nigeria. And essentially what I saw from 10 years of doing that work was you can't really address poverty without addressing mental health. And I saw firsthand the effects of intergenerational poverty, conflict, and trauma on community. And I also saw that when you provide people with what you think would help uplift them out of poverty, so access to basic health care, food, water, education, infrastructure, and even in every case on pro- programs I worked on, like simple handouts of cash, like handouts, uh, even when providing all of these things, a lot of people wouldn't come out of poverty because they were facing mental health challenges. Very interesting. I think that's exactly the new way of um, kind of approaching these these very big topics. But since you talk about this, why do you think actually like, like a, let's say that the help that we used to, like, you know, in Germany, there's this thing like um, helping poor countries to come back to wells and and um, kind of help develop them. And the story we always hear is that it basically, like you say, it fails because yeah. it just doesn't address the root cause. But what is the, let's say, the significant thing you realized or you, you saw in these countries that is leading to mental health problems that you worked in? Oh, that's a very... Uh challenging question and i'm i'm not sure if i have a a simple answer on the cause because every context and every country was different i think you know even if we took a took apart from your question the part about the developing countries like even if in the developed world like what's the leading cause of mental health challenges and it's such a wide range right yeah the brain the complex understanding consciousness is uh, complex. Um, to to give you an answer, which isn't a complete answer, um, we've seen and data tells us that our formative years and our childhood is so impactful on the development of our brain and how we process emotions and our emotional well-being. And I just, you know, I'm going to ask, your audience and the listeners to imagine here in the developed world, when many of us are given our basic needs, they're provided for, um, we still develop complex traumas because maybe we weren't held enough. Maybe we weren't given enough affection as children, but when you're living in extreme poverty, you're not given those basic needs. And on top of that, you're definitely not going to be held enough because your primary caregivers are trying to work to get you your basic needs. And um, yeah, you're suffering from malnutrition, you're suffering from food insecurity, from housing insecurity, from safety concerns. So it's a lot of problems on top of each other. And then there's the intergenerational component of in a lot of these countries, intergenerationally, they've suffered not just from poverty and trauma, but also conflict and war. Yeah, I mean, that's like a long-standing yeah. 
epigenetic line as we just see right now again. So, but I mean, that's very interesting. Um, that means also that basically um, security or the feeling of security is really directly affecting even like years, years, years later in life, um, your biography, your wealth, your health also. And um, so obviously this is something where psychedelics can come in and actually show you your old trauma and where it comes from. So, but, but I want to quickly, because I read this interview with you and the question was, I found it very interesting. Where does the interest, your commitment to heal human suffering comes from? I mean, that's kind of, wow, this Sherry, she's like taking on the world, <laughs> but there must be something that brought you into this field. And it's very, very complicated. It's a very energy sucking job. Hey, first of all, I don't know. If, I definitely don't <laughs> think I can save the world. <laughs> Uh, if I could wave a magic wand, I would, but I, I, I don't think I'm capable of doing that. Um, but I will, I'll do everything I can to contribute to that mission of, of helping heal and reduce human suffering. You know, this is a really interesting question because we can all ask ourselves, where do our passions and interests and hobbies come from? And everyone is kind of unique. Now I'm almost 40 and I'm realizing I have, yes, this intense passion to reduce human suffering. And I'll tell you a little bit about where I think it comes from. But I also realize I have no affinity or passion towards a lot of things that my friends are doing. Like I don't have any, I don't have any hobbies. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> I am. I'm not interested in most sports I run. I'm not interested in baking or cooking to an extreme <laughs> level. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't do, which is maybe why I have time for this ambitious goal of reducing human suffering. But to to be more um, to the point and, and answer where it comes from. Uh, one, I've mentioned before, my parents belong to the Ismaili community, which is a branch of Islam that focuses a lot on service. And so they taught me about service oh, from okay. very young age. I think in that community, there's a word for service called seva. And I, that was probably taught to me when I was four years old. So this was um, very normalized. And the idea of volunteering was something I saw my parents do, my cousins do, my aunts and uncles do. And they also taught me that I should also be volunteering in the community from a young age. Um, then I think it's, there was the the influence of being a daughter of immigrants. So not just the religious community, but also knowing that my parents came from developing countries and emigrated to Canada and made a pretty okay life for themselves. They weren't super well off, but they they had something or they built something. And when we went to the mosque or interacted with people from our community, I think I also saw this stark difference um, in in income levels across the community. Like I was, I was very aware from a young age that oh, like I'm lucky because you know we seem to have maybe more, maybe less than some, but also maybe more than some. Um, and then I think 
I don't know where this comes from, if it's intrinsic in our in our soul or essence of our being, but I also just had a sense of social justice, like not really getting angry at inequity um, mm. from a young age. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, but it seems like the the next the natural next step was for you to go into psychedelics in a way because as a tool <laughs> to to solve more problems. But I mean, I found interesting that you were saying in 2018 you discovered this and then got into this rabbit hole. I mean, I'm I had exactly in that year I got also in the rabbit hole. Yeah, um, and so. And then you said that it was a personal thing that kept you away from your job for a while. So you started to look into other healing modalities. So, but how, what was your first connection with, with this new world of psychedelics? Because I'm sure you also have heard of all of these nightmare stories and, um, you know, the, the narrative that we mostly grew up with, but what was your first encounter with the new, the new world of psychedelics? Yeah. So I guess we both went down the rabbit hole uh, together, but apart. In yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I was entering the world, as you said, really with this um, outlook or intention, uh, not knowing I was looking for psychedelics, but looking for solutions to solve for mental health. So going back to, I was working in, working for the UN and the World Bank. I was working in developing countries. I was now very adamant on like, we need to address mental health in order to address poverty. Um, and I was looking for solutions that would work. And so I just started how I entered, I guess the rabbit hole is just, you know, really looking for data from an academic perspective. I was looking at, okay, well, how effective are SSRIs? How effective are anti-anxiety medications? How effective is talk therapy? How much do these medicines cost? And I was looking at it from an, you know, thinking about how, could I implement any of these solutions at scale in a developing world context or in a resource constrained environment. And I entered this thinking like, oh, I need to probably solve for how to make SSRIs cheaper and more available in, in developing countries. And, but when I went down this rabbit hole, I was surprised to see that, wait a minute, what are the efficacy rates of all of these pills that we've been taking? Um, and I was very surprised to see that, um, not that antidepressants don't work for anyone. They do work for some people. Uh, they work really well for some people, but for a lot of people, they're not working. And so, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but, um, uh, and then I saw kind of similar things with talk therapy. Um, it's harder. The data is harder to pull on talk therapy, but I started seeing that, um, there are extreme the good benefits for talk therapy if you have like an isolated issue. So if you're dealing with the loss of someone, a divorce, a major life change, something at work, but if you've had ongoing sort of treatment resistant depression or PTSD, talk therapy alone is um, going to be more difficult to use effectively. Uh, it'll help, but maybe not get to the root cause. Um, and then now, sorry, getting more to your question. I really stumbled upon the research first and stumbled upon initial clinical trials with psilocybin and MDMA and had no personal experience with these drugs, but really was sitting there on my laptop reading clinical trials and was blown away by early results saying, you know, 
things like 65 to 75% of people are doing one to three sessions of psilocybin assisted therapy and no longer meet the diagnosis for depression in a 12 month follow-ups. Um, that's really what did it to me. And then I think what happened is I perhaps prematurely or naively thought that um, in the work I was doing uh, in mostly in Africa, that I could maybe get my colleagues and peers to start uh, looking into this as a solution to implement as part of our programs. But I was mm -hmm. a little too early. <laughs> and so that was the moment when you thought about roughly founding your own company, I guess, right? I mean, at one point. You know what? No, not in that moment. First, I just realized like, I want to, um, I want to focus on getting these solutions out there and, and do, applying my skills. So I quit my job and I knew I wanted to apply all of my skills in program management and project development and implementation of programs in difficult resource constrained environments. Like I wanted to take everything I've learned and apply that to the psychedelic space to see if I can support and be of service in making these medicines more accessible. So I knew that was clear. Um, I wasn't sure of the how. So I um, started consulting and advising to different organizations before starting Enthea. I got trained at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Okay. I did this um, in psychedelic therapies and research. I started advising to CIS as well and help, helping them grow their training program. I um, was brought on as executive director of the Boston Psychedelic Research Group, which is a nonprofit um, designed to kind of help disseminate information about psychedelic research and create community. And I think through that sort of organically, I um, met people who were like-minded with similar intentions that wanted to focus on access. So I, I knew access was what I wanted to, where I wanted to work and apply my skill set. And I met other people that also wanted to do the same. And together we co-founded uh, Anthea. So Anthea is really, in my perception, I mean, and again, I follow your work for a while. It's a really game-changing idea, I think, that let's say normal employees in every company could basically get at one point psychedelic assisted therapy through their employee, through their bosses and, and uh, employers. So what, what made you just really think of, okay, this is the place where we have to start with transformation and with support, because it, it seems like a totally logic idea. And at the same time, like the wildest idea somebody could have. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a wild idea if you don't work in the health insurance or employer benefit space. And I didn't come from that space. So, we, so yes, it's even a crazy idea to me. Um, I had one of my mentors uh, at the UN uh, who I'd come to sort of venting, to be honest, and complaining about, you know, I've worked so hard. I, I, I had some anger, maybe a negative sentiment of like, I've worked so hard and I've had all of these ideas and I've helped build 
all of these programs, you know, probably too much ego, I, 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 but, <laughs> but, um, I came to him with my frustration saying, you know, now I have this idea about psychedelics and nobody wants to listen. And, okay. hmm. um, that person very wisely said to me, Sherry, you're pitching something to be implemented like in countries that in mo where most of the country is living on less than a dollar a day. And the U.S. is not offering this to its citizens. So when he said that to me, it sort of got the wheels turning. And he said, Cherry, why don't you focus? He, he really did give me the best advice and say, why don't you focus on getting this implemented in the U.S.? So then maybe we have a model to go by and there's some validation. Uh, out there before, before, you know, pitching it. And I sort of have, you know, saying this out loud, some frustrations with that sentiment, because I don't think everything should have to be in the U S first, but I do understand, um, that this is, <laughs> this is very new and innovative and, um, having a model to go by, like, I, I understand that sentiment. And ultimately for me, that's what then led me to explore. Well, what are we doing in the U.S.? How do you get benefits to people in the U.S.? Okay, through through insurance plans, through benefit plans. Where do most U.S.? So I'm Canadian, just for the audience. Yeah. So this is a lot for me to learn because I come from a country where we have free public health care. Um, so I had to do a deep dive of like, okay, well, how do people get their health care in the U.S.? Okay, most of them get them through employer-sponsored plans. And um, then I found people, uh, coincidentally, because the psychedelic... Uh, ecosystem and community is vast and always growing um that similarly had uh not similarly but complementary to me had experience in health insurance and employer benefit plans uh, and were passionate about psychedelics and so it sort of came together initially with different people with different experiences but similar uh goals um and yeah, from an idea, it became a company, I guess. So, and um, I mean, the first, the first, maybe we can say this, I mean, the first client or like bigger client was Dr. Bronner's. Yeah. Not surprisingly, because they once also sponsored this podcast. <laughs> They're very supportive for the psychedelic movement. But I mean, one question before we, we get into this, maybe more detailed example, how they did it and then why it's so interesting. Like, one question that immediately came to my mind is that this is not only kind of helping employees to feel better and let's say to be better employees in the end. Yeah. The real question behind it is would it eventually transform a whole idea of working, of, yes. of a hierarchy replaced by a mycelium network if it's going to be mushrooms at one point <laughs> that people can take. So is this something that you, besides your, your brilliant scaling talents, is this something that you had in mind while you were founding the company? Excellent question. What I had in mind, and I'm going to maybe share a, a time that was kind of humbling for me. What I had in mind when I helped start Anthea was I was laser focused on how do we get these medicines 
to people who are suffering in developing countries. And you, you've probably heard this thread now, and even in this conversation. So I was very laser focused on how do we get these medicines to people who are suffering in developing countries? Because remember, I spent 10 years of my life day in and day out in community, witnessing people suffering, uh, in addition to witnessing joy and, and many other positive things as well. And so I hear what you're saying and what you're asking me, but I think my initial ideas around Anthea, to be honest, um, were narrow, narrow and wide at the same time. And so I went in with, oh, we have to focus on getting this to people who are suffering. So Anthea is sort of maybe a stepping stone. If we get this to people in the US, if we get it to employers in the US, if companies start offering this, this will create enough data and this will make it more accepted. And then we can do this in developing countries. What I've realized and learned, and, and all of that may happen, but what I've realized and learned is I neglected and didn't think about how much suffering was happening here. And I, yeah. Um, and, you know, even saying it out loud, like I, I own it. And also, um, I'm like not proud of this. Right. But I, um, had made this very erroneous connection in my brain that people who have less economically are suffering more mentally. And that's not necessarily the case through Anthea, through the Dr. Bronner's pilot, which we'll talk about through being able to have a platform and a, and a place to speak, like you're giving me on this podcast and, and also a chance to speak with others. When I go to conferences, I am now so aware that people are suffering a lot here too. And while we may have, we, a lot of us may be lucky to have, you know, access to basic healthcare, maybe not all of us are that lucky in the US, but or running water or at least electricity or some some basic needs are met, people are definitely suffering here too. And COVID has only made that worse. And so I don't know if that answered your question, but I think that was a big realization for me that no, um, it's, it's it's super interesting because I feel like the last years or like also maybe since the psychedelic movement is moving forward and we have people like Gabo Mate having new theories about like theories, like yeah. Yeah, theories around trauma. So, and I feel like there's a reframing of suffering. It's almost like the, oh, he had the poor countries and he had the great countries and they have everything and they should be, of, of course, they should be grateful that you have everything. But um, I feel like since the pandemic, like you say, and also since the new emerging psychedelic research, it shows that suffering is might need like a redefinition in the West in the Western world. I mean, in in the other worlds that are not that we don't put into the Western world, it's it's obviously like oh, people don't have anything. That's why they suffer. But what is actually the suffering that's happening here? So, and that's kind of still almost like undisclosed, I feel, or like people are almost like, oh, let's not talk about it because we have everything, but it's still very strong, right? There's that kind of new suffering. Yeah. And I think you actually, you named it pretty well earlier in this conversation about a lot of it may be tied to security or, or lack of security. Um, and I think relative poverty and relative security are also 
important things to keep in mind. Um, and there's a lot of studies on this, uh, the effects of, you know, relative poverty. I may actually have a lot, but if I feel like I have a lot less compared to my neighbor, compared to my community, compared to the people around me, then I, I, I interpret it and process it and feel it and all have all of the emotions around my current state as if it was more extreme poverty or as if, or similar to someone living in more extreme poverty because it's relative to my surroundings. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's, it's really about this suffering, mm. like in, in, in a modern way, almost <laughs> that has not so much to do with your yeah. income, your family and everything. So, but I mean, I feel like this is just emerging the, the awareness for this, but, but let's, let's come back to the Dr. Brana's example, because so I think it was that people working for them, being employees, had 12 sessions of ketamine therapy that they could actually get. I think I remember this like, like this. And then, or, or their family members, if they would express some mental health problems. Yeah. So how it uh, worked is kind of very similar to any other plan. For me, I like comparing this to a dental plan. Um, because I feel like it's easier to, un yeah. to understand the mechanism. Sure, so if, um, if I worked for Dr. Bronner's, uh, similar to how I have dental coverage, probably me and my spouse or my partner would have access to those dental benefits. Right. And then either me or my, my partner, my spouse could go to the dentist and get dental work done based on need right? So the dentist is not going to fill cavities if there's no cavities to fill <laughs> or not do a root canal just for fun, because that wouldn't be good. But um, bringing it back to, to the example with the ketamine assisted therapy now, that it might make more sense. So Dr. Bronner's employees and their spouses were um, covered via Anthea and were allowed to get ketamine assisted therapy if after doing an intake, like a psychological and medical assessment, it was determined by the provider that they were a good candidate. So that was the first step, the screening to make sure that they are a good candidate. And then in terms of how many sessions, that also kind of depends um, on the individual and the provider. So the provider would assess that, okay, for this person, it might be four sessions of ketamine, ketamine is what we're recommending in combination with therapy for someone else. It might be six sessions for someone else. It might've just been three sessions. So it depends. It was very much dependent on what that patient needed. Okay. So, and then of course, the main question that most people would ask like, okay, so can the, your employer know that you're doing this therapy? No, can, of course right? No. So all of this is um, protected information. There's HIPAA compliance laws that are very strict in the U.S. So note the employer. That's actually why, um, that's a great question. That's actually why, one of the reasons why Anthea exists, because an employer can't just tell their employees, hey, go to this ketamine clinic and send us your bill for reimbursement. Like they would maybe for a gym membership, right? Like you could send your employer, depending on your employers, yeah, yeah. you could send them a receipt being like, oh, I, I have a hundred dollars a month for fitness. So here's my gym membership. Then, you're, then your employer knows you're going to the gym, which is fine. But when it comes to um, um, 
personal health information and sensitive patient information, your employer shouldn't know that you have depression and you're going through ketamine treatment. And so via Anthea, we protect all of that information and there's, you know, uh, an intermediary between the patient, the the members, the provider and the employer. Um, So no, they don't know. But what we did see, and I'm I'm probably, you're probably going to ask about this, were really incredible results. And I'm happy to speak about that. Yeah, please. Yeah. What, what, is, uh, what are the results? We just recently released the results from the one year of data with Dr. Bronner's. And we saw that people that came in with a PTSD diagnosis had an 86% reduction in symptoms, which is like really kind of unheard of with any other, with any other treatment. Yeah. With anything else. And then people with anxiety and depression had a 67 and 66, sorry, 65 and 67% reduction in symptoms respectively. And again, like if you compare that to what we see with SSRIs or what we see with talk therapy alone, or even maybe a combination, like you don't see from 65 to 86% reduction in symptoms. Um, so it's pretty outstanding. That, that's that's really interesting. That's a really high number. But um, one thing that immediately comes to mind when you say this is that, I mean, a whole workplaces, and I want to say also our leadership places, um, seem to run on PTSD. So um, if you watch the morning show, which I do... <laughs> <laughs> it's like five people on kind of working with their PTSD to get successful or, I mean, madman, you could say, or I mean, billions succession. So it's full of traumatized, very powerful people that still seem to run this world or are able to adjust to a leadership because they all, the employees would also kind of suffer from PTSD or another maybe mental health condition that makes them very submissive to really bad leadership. So, and I don't know, this, this topic is obviously also on the rise with leadership retreats and psychedelics. And, um, but, but I always ask myself, what happens if we, if we can't use these also sometimes very powerful PTSD conditions, I'm just going to be a little devil's advocate, What if we lose all of this? How will our working world look like or our workspace? I know you can't answer that question, but it is something that's really fascinating. Like how we, how will we build actually new work structures? What, what do you, what do you think about that? So, um, one, I think, uh, I think that we should, You may not agree with this opinion of mine, uh, which is totally fine. I'm happy if we don't agree. I don't think psychedelics are for everyone. So I don't think that they are going to cure all of our problems or make leaders, all leaders better or solve, you know, just all of our problems. That's, there are people that do believe that, but I don't believe that either. Okay. okay. I I think that we should be careful in administering psychedelic assisted therapy to people who need need 
these medicines and qualify and make good candidates for these medicines. And so I think there's an important step of screening from a provider that we shouldn't overlook. So I I worry about a world where psychedelics become legalized quickly or decriminalized quickly. Nothing that I'm anti-decriminalization, but I just think we need to have safeguards in place so that people are not just taking them loosely without knowing if they make a good candidate and without a guide and without the proper protocols in place. When taken uh, under medical guidelines and with the correct safety protocols, I do think that they have the potential to really transform our workplace in positive ways. The ways that India is talking to employers about right now are, you know, beyond beyond numbers and, and ROI and saving money on medical spend, which, you know, that's one side of the equation, but we'll see a more engaged workforce. We'll see people being more productive. We'll see people showing up and being more present at work. So more presenteeism, less absenteeism. We'll see maybe, you know, I, we always say that we'll see better retention and to kind of, to kind of, uh, go on to what you were asking a little bit more. I've been asked, well, maybe we'll see better retention, but we'll also see more people quitting because people. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, sure. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Perhaps we will see that. But I think if people are quitting, they'll be quitting because they were misaligned with where they were and they will yeah. find something more aligned. And then companies will attract people who are more aligned and aligned people will stay. So I think like, it's a net positive, but yes, I, <laughs> there, there, there is, you know, but the chances of both happening, I think that I, I think in that way, we'll see differences in the workforce, but I think beyond that, we may see leaders leading with more, hopefully integrity and empathy and, um, like resilience and adaptability and empowering others. Um, I think, you know, the way the world is just taking your employer question out of it, but speaking a little bit without going into politics of the state of the world right now, we're definitely seeing that, um, we don't have enough compassion and connection to others. And this won't solve all of that in itself, but I think, uh, it may help. I mean, it, it almost sounds like leadership today means is equal to PTSD. I mean, in a very weird way, kind of, and in many countries. You know what? Maybe. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think it is easy to think that when, I think that's a reflection of like how skewed our media is. And yeah, also very true. Media has, yeah. Um, on us. I mean, I'm saying that because I know some like incredible leaders who, who um, may, I don't think have PTSD. Maybe I should ask them. But, but maybe it's the media who has it. Maybe it's a yeah. very interesting thing you're saying yeah. because maybe it's the communication of yeah, things. Things um, are painted. Yeah. yeah with true. Certain, certain lens. So I, we definitely see it in the media. We definitely see it sensationalized in shows, like you said, like billions and succession. And like, it's very much sensationalized because that makes for good good TV as well. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, honestly, we're having worked in media. It's kind of, it's not that far off many of these shows that play in media. 
Yeah. That was pretty close to how it is. So it's not like, oh, it's a TV show. It has to be really exaggerated. So, and, and then I have these memories from working back then where I was like, oh yeah, that guy, he was exactly like, um, the guy in the morning show or, um, Don Draper and all of these other guys. So guys yeah. mainly. So, <laughs> so, but I wanted, I wanted to talk to you about something else, which I find interesting because I think in one article I read also that you are actively approaching other companies now to offer your services, let's say. And how does this normally work? So you talk to the CEO, you say like, hey, this is what we could offer. And so I think, was it Shopify also that, that you guys are? No, that's not okay. one of them. Okay. But I mean, so there are other companies that you in, in talks with, you don't have to, to name them, but how, how do you communicate this to, yeah, to the leadership team saying, well, this is something we could offer for you? You know what? It's been really interesting. So we actually have 10 customers now, oh, wow. cool. which is great. And, um, and uh, we're constantly adding more. Um, we have about almost a hundred now in kind of the pipeline that we're in actively talking to and in conversation with. And we have also built like a network of providers across the country so that if we're talking to an employer with employees in almost any state, um, we know that we have a provider that could give them ketamine therapy. So we have like nationwide access. But how we approach the employers and those conversations has been uh, extremely interesting because it's not, going back to my other example, it is not like selling dental insurance or dental plans um, at all. Um, both our employer benefit like health plans, but the sale of this one and the conversation around this one is very different. And how it's different is that, um, there's an emotional connection, even when talking to leadership or to the HR people at these various companies, sometimes we're talking to C-suites, sometimes we're talking to founders, sometimes we're talking to people in HR that ultimately usually make this decision, depending on the size of the company. Um, and sometimes we're talking to someone in none of the roles I just mentioned, but they are an employee at the company and they, they're they an, an advocate of these medicines. Whomever we're talking to, there is a strong emotional component in the conversation because everyone has experienced like the effects of our mental health crisis, either directly or indirectly. So either the person we're talking to has a mental health issues have affected them personally, or it's affected them through a family member, a friend, a loved one. And so this is such an interesting sale or conversation more than anything, because everyone can resonate whether or not they've had an experience with psychedelics. They can resonate with the difficulty in finding solutions for mental health that work and seeing people suffer that they love or care about, or they've suffered. So, um, so really, pardon? Yeah. Is this, do you feel that this is, I feel like in the meantime, this is basically the gateway, the best gateway to understand why psychedelics should be available as therapy, because there's this one person in family or like in, in your friend's zone or in your, I don't know, or even at work that, just doesn't get better and it's 
that person went to the millions times to the to a rehab or something. So and then they do something in terms of psychedelic therapy and there you can see in front of you like how the person is changing. Is this basically the most effective destigmatizing experience people can have, do you think? If I understand your question correctly, you're asking if I think psychedelic therapy is the most effective experience people can have? No, I mean like if you, what I meant is like when you have a person that's close to you, that what you just described, if yes. that person has, let's say, tried everything yes. and nothing worked and then you see, oh, that person did ketamine therapy seems to be better or like went on a truffle trip seems to yeah, be better. That, so that makes our life very easy in, in making it. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, what I realized in our initial, in our, with our very, very early adopter companies. So like, for example, these 10 customers, right? Uh, everyone in all of those cases, there is somebody in leadership in those companies that has either had a psychedelic experience and knows how beneficial it is, or, oh, if okay. have, or if they haven't had it, they know of someone that has had it, just like you said. So it could not, doesn't have to be a colleague, could be an, a friend, a cousin, a loved one, whatever, but they've heard of someone that's had it and they were like, yeah, I, I know this person and they like, it changed their life. So I want to be able to offer this to my employees. We definitely see that in a lot of our early, early adopters. However, we're also now very cognizant of if you expand to the larger pool and like the like total addressable market or attainable market, um, that's not the case for everyone that we're talking to. Some people we talk to don't know anyone who's tried psychedelics or tried psychedelic therapy or tried ketamine therapy. Like they don't know anyone. And that's okay too, because they'll still resonate with, they know someone who has suffered from mental health and hasn't found a solution. So maybe they don't know someone who's tried ketamine therapy, but they definitely know someone who's suffering who hasn't found help. And we can still talk to them and resonate with them on that. And then we show them the data that's out there on all of the benefits of psychedelic therapy, including ketamine therapy and how beneficial it is, what clinical trials have shown, what our data with Bronner's has shown. And then we talk to them about how it can help in terms of like the workforce and things like absenteeism and productivity. Interesting. Wow. And, and what is your, let's say, big vision for Anthea, that it becomes basically a health insurance by itself, maybe at one point, a psychedelic health, health insurance? The big vision would be that millions of people will have access to like tens of millions of people will have access to these medicines uh, via Anthea. And because tens of millions of people have access to it via Anthea, it will cause a domino effect where other people will offer it. Other large insurance carriers will offer it. Other health plans will offer it as well. And so eventually, big vision, it will create a domino effect. So hundreds of millions of people will have access to it. And then even bigger macro vision, going back to how this conversation started, hopefully other countries will be like, oh, wow, you know, this is working. The U.S. are getting this from their employer. This is working. There's all of this data. Like, how do we also do this? So, yeah. Um, and maybe that happens before it happens in the U.S., which is cool, but it's all kind of interrelated and connected in some way. So, 
I think at the US will be the first place. I think where we're just well, I mean, Australia is doing a lot of I, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But I feel the idea that employees get this from their boss is just yeah. like in Europe, it's like, wait a minute, are you sure this is what I <laughs> did? I understand this correctly. And we actually we had a last year we had a panel or two years ago at, in Davos at the House of Psychedelics about psychedelics coming to the workspace, and um, it was such a for most people in the audience, it was such a wild idea that this is even like the boss gives them drugs or what? Like, yeah, how is this ever going to work out? So, but I mean, now it seems the picture has already changed and it's like, well, of course the access needs to, it's one of the, like you say, it's one of the most important topics, um, how, how people can actually get it. And in terms of their classic health insurance, although it's an at the moment, it's an illegal substance. So, and it becomes like totally the thought, like I said, it's very, it's a very logic idea yeah. to, to offer it to your employees. So if anybody here is, uh, has a company here and <laughs> is thinking about it, please reach out to Sherry. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. It's such an interesting topic to me because to me, it's the most, one of the most revolutionary ideas, which I like actually. Um, at the same time, it, it like the way you present it and do it, it's so, it's so clear and it's not like, oh, it's a crazy idea. It's just a very clear and revolutionary idea. So those are the best ideas normally. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I do think if, if people start seeing this, if we can shift the stigma and not see it as like a boss handing out drugs and just seeing it as, oh yeah, we get our mental health. We get all of our health solutions from our employers. This is just, you know, another solution that we get covered for us through our employers um, and start shifting the narrative. It'll help. But I've, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. But you know what? I have, I have one question while you're saying this, that's really came to my mind. I mean, because I mean, the health insurance that companies give, right? I mean, it's basically you go to Dr. So-and-so to have your, I don't know, your classic checkup or you, yes. you feel like so-and-so you go to this and this doctor. So it, basically it, 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 everything plays on a physical level. Let's basically say, but I mean, now it also turns out that a lot of the typical Western diseases or something like fibromyalgia where you don't even have like a diagnosis, but you have pain in your body where you don't know where it comes from. That a lot of these conditions are related to trauma. kind of a trauma. Yeah. And like a mental health problem, let's call it. So is this also something you use to convince bosses to say like, <laughs> yeah. you will have less cars. <laughs> and you're doing all of my stuff. Do you need okay. another job? Yes, definitely. When we're talking to employers, we go a lot uh, into the data around what we call the multiplier effect. Um, and there's a ton of data on the co comorbidity of mental health issues and other chronic conditions like heart disease, obesity, chronic pain. And um, we, there's a lot of data out there that to show that somebody who has depression and obesity, for example, will end up costing, you know, 
X amount more in hospital visits than someone who just had the obesity. So having the obesity or the or the heart condition with a mental illness will actually end up costing more at the ER and more to treat, even just to treat the heart stuff. And so this is like a huge point we make to employers that by actually treating the underlying mental health condition, you're not just going to save on what you're spending to treat this person with SSRIs and talk therapy, which you will be saving because they're going to be probably go off the SSRIs, you're also going to be saving because their costs in the ER, their costs with their general health, their costs on obesity, their costs on heart conditions, all of these other things is also going to go down. And so it's like a huge return for employers. Um, And I mean, I'm talking to you now about dollars and that kind of return, but if you take it back to the individual level and forget about bottom lines, it's a huge return in like health and wellness to that, to that person. Like if they're costing their employer less, that means they're healthier. And so, and so, um, uh, you know, ultimately like going now, going back full circle, we're reducing human suffering, right? If we're, if we're helping people. This is the new resolution of human suffering that you're doing (laughs) right at the root cause of things. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, I think I'm a really big fan of, of your, of your work, but I think it's one, to me, it's one of the most fascinating companies in, in, in the space and makes the most sense to me. So thank you for being on the show and, um, all the best. And, um, I hope we see each other soon on one of these millions of conferences. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. Hey, and thank you for listening to this episode. Since I have you here, I just wanted to remind you, please follow us on Instagram, The New Health Club, on X, The New Health CL1, on LinkedIn, and please subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. I'm very happy if you are a returning listener and customer and fan of The New Health Club. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.